0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department will get a set of data commandments in the future, according to its chief data officer. David Spurk says those commandments will guide acquisition of new solutions and integration of legacy systems. FCW reports Spurk says the commandments could be key to the development of joint all-domain command and control. The Defense Information Systems Agency will get a new director. The Senate confirmed Major General Robert Skinner to become the next DISA director and promoted him to lieutenant general. Air Force Magazine reports he'll take over from Navy Vice Admiral Nancy Norton. The DOD Inspector General's office is stopping one audit on diversity training to start another one. The office says the new audit will focus on compliance with President Trump's executive order September 22nd. FCW reports the new audit is already underway. Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles C.Q. Brown says talks are ongoing with Navy Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday about collaborating on the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Network. Breaking Defense reports, Brown says he's open to developing a memorandum of understanding with the Navy, similar to one the Air Force has with the Army. Deborah Lee James is the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. Madam Secretary, welcome back. It's good to see you. Um, Thank
1: you. Good to be here, Francis.
0: You are also author of the book Aim High, Chart Your Course and Find Success. What does the collaboration look like, do you think, between the Air Force and the Navy on JADC2. Is it as simple as replicating what the Navy and the Air Force have done?
1: Well, nothing is ever quite that simple, Francis. So for one thing, I do think it would be important to get something in writing from the Chief of Naval Operations, in collaboration with the Air Force and even with the Army. General Milley, of course, has designated this as a major effort and put the Air Force in charge of it. But the Pentagon is driven by paper, and so to have that MOU, I think, would help particularly as you start working at lower levels and they start questioning, well, are my senior leaders really behind this effort or not? So that paper is important. And I think then if we get that and if the Navy is prepared to commit some time and some resources, that is when they can, in a more fulsome way, start participating in some of these on-ramp demonstration, experimentation programs where the Army and the Air Force have been collaborating fairly well thus far.
0: Each of the organizations, each of the branches has had its own effort in this area going for a while. And as you say, General Milley has decided advanced battle management system in the Air Force is going to be where all of these systems come together. What will that look like ultimately? What still is to happen between now and then uh, before we get to what General McConville talked about on this program a couple of weeks ago and, and others have said? you know, all shooters having access to all information.
1: Right. Well, it is a big effort, and it's easier to talk about it than it is to actually demonstrate it and do it and make it work consistently. So the ABMS uh, program is, you think of it as a foundation. Every system needs a foundation upon which the rest will be built. And the ABMS system will be, in effect, a military internet of things which then presumably some of the technologies and the capabilities and the C2 systems that each of the military services have worked on for years can then be plugged into. But the key is, is that it has to all work together in a seamless way and to get from here to there you can't swallow the ocean all in one gulp you have to do these demonstration programs and take it step by step so that is currently what uh the team is working on over at the pentagon
0: i forgive you if you're biased toward the air force and the work that they've done on abms but why is that the right place for why why is the air force the right place to be kind of overseeing this framework that the other services are coming into
1: Well, I would say, first of all, that command and control in general has been one of the core missions of the Air Force since the Air Force separated from the Army in the year 1947. So it's kind of in the DNA of the Air Force. It is what the Air Force has done for uh, many, many years. So that's point one. Point two is, I give great credit to General Goldfein and subsequently to General Brown. So Goldfein originally had this vision. He, He proselytized. He was like an evangelist across the department, convincing others. And he put his money, our money, the Air Force money, where his mouth was to say, we will commit resources, we will commit the time and energy and leadership to make this happen. No one else had stepped up in such a way to build that foundation. And again, the foundation is step one.
0: One of the things that is striking to me is you talked about General Goldfein, and you're right. He was an advocate for this when people thought this was a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's now coming to fruition, and it strikes me that because of the time that has been devoted to this, this is not something that's likely to disappear as a result of changes of administration. Ch- obviously, it's not going anywhere as a result of changes in the chief of staff at the Air Force. This is something that for organizations, as you mentioned at the lower levels, that wonder, uh, is the command of this branch committed to this? Everybody's committed to this, it appears.
1: I mean, I would certainly say so, that's correct. I don't think this is going to go away with a change of administration. I think this is here to stay because there is recognition that in the information age and in a complex world in which our potential adversaries have watched us operate, for 25 years they've largely got us figured out and they have developed ways to interfere with us across the military services as well as across all domains so how do we counter that and one of the ways that we think we can counter that is to harness the value of a common operating picture and this joint command and control uh, system which would give us speed for decision making it would allow decision makers to figure out how to attack an adversary do it fast and and wreak confusion so if the enemy doesn't know where you're coming from and then boom you hit them before they even know it's coming that's a tremendous advantage so i do think the system will be here to stay
0: we just have a couple of minutes left madam secretary i spoke to a navy leader not too long ago and uh, unprovoked, said, what is your top priority regarding data and the exchange of information? And he said to me, JADC2, named it without me giving him any prompting. Does, do you take heart in that, that maybe some of the hesitations the Navy's had in the past might be going away finally?
1: Well, I, I do take heart in that, and um, I think if you know Admiral Gilday was that clear about it, then surely it won't be that difficult to get the MOU written. And again, not to be make that the be-all and end-all. And I certainly believe Admiral Gilday's words, but when you filter ten levels down within the Navy not everybody gets the message. So if there's a piece of paper to prove that Admiral Gilday is willing to go with this, willing to commit resources, willing to participate in these experimentations, and very importantly, willing to amend or change in some way the Navy's command and control system to compromise for the sake of the joint system, that goes a long way.
0: Madam Secretary, thank you very much. Great to have you on as
1: always. Thank you, Francis.
0: Up next, the election's not over exactly, but the results will impact the future of defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what to watch as the votes come in. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The results of some races from Tuesday are official or obvious, but the election will not be official until the General Services Administration signs off on the winner. That could be weeks from now. Aaron Mehta is deputy editor and senior Cor- uh, Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. Aaron, welcome. What's your big takeaway from Tuesday night as far as how it impacts the defense community moving forward?
2: Yeah, obviously, the first big thing is we got to know who wins as president, um, and that seems like it could take a while and obviously that'll, that'll drive some changes. Uh, the thing that seems to be likely now is it, it seems unlikely the Senate will flip, which seemed in play up until Tuesday night, uh, that now it seems like the Republicans will hold on to the Senate. That means we're likely looking at uh, a slim Republican majority in the Senate, a slim Democratic majority in the House, and obviously whoever wins the presidency. Uh, there have been a lot of talk from House Democrats, particularly on the progressive side, about trying to cut the defense budget by as much as 10%. Uh, we saw Adam Smith, who's the House Armed Services Committee chairman, say he was very worried about that and knew, knows he has to fight against his own caucus to defend uh, defense spending. Obviously, if Republicans maintain the majority in the Senate, that helps that situation and probably, you know, brackets defense spending from any major cuts.
0: What's the difference between uh, continuation of Senator Inhofe as the chairman of the SASC? He was reelected uh, Tuesday night handily; wasn't expected to lose his race as opposed to Senator Reid, the ranking member who will stay the ranking member and not become the chairman as some people thought.
2: Yeah, you know, Reid is not a uh, a flamethrower by any stretch of the imagination. He's pretty conservative for a Democrat in terms of defense policy. Uh, Obviously, he has a number of defense uh, industries inside Rhode Island that he's focused on, shipbuilding primarily. I think they, they tend to work together on defense issues. We haven't seen huge daylight between the two of them as chairman and ranking member on major issues. There's been some social aspects that have broken, but for the most part, they tend to work together. Reid's a pretty laid-back guy in a lot of ways in how he presents himself. Uh, I think if it had flipped, you would see, again, more Democratic priorities coming through that committee, but a tone that would probably have been similar. In this case, I think we're going to see just exactly what we've seen in the last couple of years with Ian and reed working together.
0: And given that, and I know you're talking specifically about leadership on the SASC, but basically my takeaway from Tuesday night is that as far as it applies to defense policy and defense appropriations, things are pretty much the same. We're still going to have Adam Smith as the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. We'll have a new ranking member uh, on the Republican side as uh, Mac Thornberry is retired um, but we'll still have Inhofe and Reid as the leaders on the SASC. What does that mean for things uh, like the National Defense Authorization Act, in your view? Not much progress seems to be uh, happening so far on this year's uh, bill. Now there's no reason for progress to not happen, right? I mean, the same players are involved, and they now know that they're going to be the same players involved.
2: Yeah, I would imagine that something gets worked out in the NDAA pretty quickly, post-election. I mean, we've we've seen signals from these leaders that essentially they just didn't wanna deal with it until after the election, and that they kind of have a plan in place for that now that the election's over. Uh, Obviously, I think the big question there is, again, with the presidency, uh, if there's anything that gets put into the NDAA, for instance, uh, some of the issues about renaming bases, uh, President Trump has signaled he would uh, veto, or at least is against that type of action. Uh, If that does make it into the NAA, I think if Trump wins or loses, that's the type of thing that might get pushed to the next year or just have to kind of be an issue that gets worked out in the next month.
0: And that's kind of where I wanted to go next. Do we see a lot of those things coming out of NDAA um, just to make it happen, given that we're now going to be in the middle of November by the time we get uh, really back to work on this?
2: Yeah, I don't know, honestly, because a lot of these issues have been discussed for a while. Um, you know, even uh, we've seen some support for, for the renaming bases from uh, members of Pentagon leadership. We've seen some support from Republicans. Uh, it's less of an issue on the Hill than it is with the president. Again, if Trump is reelected and he says, I have a mandate from my voters and they don't like this and I'm gonna veto this, I do think you'll see the then agree, all right, we're going to table this so that we can get an NDA passed because we need it. If Biden wins, I don't know, maybe they push the issue. Uh, or maybe they say, we'll wait until next year and we know Biden will support this and we'll deal with it then.
0: Anything else that you'll be following as a result of the election? Or do we now in, in the defense watching business just go back to, the, to paying attention to what's going on in the building?
2: You know, I think there's a couple of things. One is the fate of Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. Uh, He is widely expected if Trump is reelected to not uh, be in that position for much longer. Um, We'll see what happens there and how quickly that happens and if somebody is confirmed or not, uh, given that we know that the president uh, has enjoyed in the past having acting officials in those jobs. He said he likes doing that. Um, I also think the the defense budget writ large is something we're going to be watching, of course, going forward. Uh, Even if uh, Republicans hold on and President Trump wins, there's not expectations of a big budget boost. Maybe we won't see the big defense cuts that uh, some had worried about with a Democratic majority. Um, The other thing is the fate of this, uh, what Esper's called Battle Force 2045, which is his plan to build up 500-plus ships. There's a lot of skepticism, even from uh, Republican pro-ship-building individuals in Congress about this plan. If Esper's gone, how long does that plan last? Got a lot of backing also from Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, who very well could end up as a Secretary of Defense in a second Trump administration. So there's a lot of personnel parts moving. The only other thing I'd say is we've already seen Senator Martha McSally uh, is losing her seat, it appears, in Arizona. Uh, Alyssa Slotkin, who's a Democratic member of the Hask, who had served in the Pentagon in the past, appears to have won her seat in Michigan. So there are a couple of seats that could change or could shift in those committees. And obviously, new people come in, there might be some new policies that come out of
0: that. Aaron Mehta, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Up next, what the Navy can do now to meet that 500 ship goal by 2045, straight ahead on on Government Matters, the path forward for Navy shipbuilding. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Secretary of Defense Mark Esper says the Navy will increase its ship count to over 500 by 2045. According to the Hudson Institute, the right mix of manned and unmanned ships could make that goal a reality. Timothy Walton's a fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's writing about the Navy fleet along with his colleague Brian Clark in Defense News. Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Battle Force 2045, you and your team submitted uh, a proposal along those lines. What is in and what is out to get the Navy to that 500 plus fleet by
3: 2045? Sure, Uh, thank you for having me on, Francis. Um, Battle Force 2045 is Secretary Esper's concept for this future naval force structure. And as you mentioned, Brian Clark, Seth Cropsey, and I at the Hudson Institute contributed to the process. Um, We found that the Navy can credibly field a fleet that would be about 581 vessels by 2045 as long as it changes the ships, the the mix of ships that it has, from shifting from some larger manned vessels to incorporate more numerous uh, unmanned and smaller vessels in its design. And this would generate a fleet that's more operationally effective, but could also be fiscally sustainable. And and that was one of the surprising outcomes of this study. Um, I think another point to highlight is that this new approach to the fleet will require some increases in shipbuilding over the next few years, Um, but equally importantly is going to be what's out of the plan, as you pointed out. Um, And so there are a bunch of sort of expensive add-ons that could distract the Navy from the most important elements. So for instance, there's interest in growing to three per year, the number of attack submarines that are procured by the Navy. Um, We found that that would be very expensive to do, and it would also be challenging for the industrial base because shipyards are currently building the next generation of nuclear uh, ballistic missile submarine, the Columbia class. So it'd be challenging to do those two things at the same time. Um, Another good example is how uh, in the area of hypersonics, where National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien discussed his interest in installing boost glide hypersonic weapons on old destroyers. Um, I think his proposal comes from a good place. uh, But the fact is uh, that would cost a lot to make those modifications to ships that are nearing the end of their service lives and are really expensive to operate. So it probably wouldn't be the best use of the Navy's resources. So overall, uh, Secretary Esper's design and vision has lots of promise,
0: but defense leaders
3: will actually need to stick to it and not get distracted.
0: And I wonder how much of that is the responsibility of the defense leaders and how much of it's the responsibility of Congress, Tim, to stick to whatever it is that the Defense Department says that it wants and not give the department a whole bunch of things it doesn't want.
3: Uh, That's a great question, exactly. So I think it's going to be incumbent upon the Navy to carefully explain this proposed plan to Congress, how it changes the design of the fleet. And an element of that will be what's changed in terms of the fleet design. Um, Our proposed approach to the fleet, I think, gives a lot of leeway to, to Congress in the sense that it stewards the Maritime Industrial Base, stewards shipyards, it doesn't rapidly cancel construction of any current ships. So I think that should assuage Congress. Um, But there are going to be some changes, and congressional support will be necessary to make it possible.
0: You get at, uh, in this defense news column, you and Brian, uh, one of the issues that I have not seen discussed as much, a lot made of the fleet and what the composition is. But you write, the Navy needs to spend more on improving repair yard infrastructure, growing munitions stocks, and providing command and control capabilities to the force. But the problem is that all costs money too, right, Tim?
3: It does. Uh, Yep. So I think the Navy is going to have to follow this delicate balancing act. Um, Most of these discussions of future fleet architecture focus on the number of ships, uh, be it 287, 355, 581. uh, But they almost always ignore what are all of the other enablers necessary to make a fleet operate and fight effectively. Um, We pointed out three there in in that article. um, And those are areas where the Navy is going to have to address it. So for instance for ships to spend more time at sea instead of tied up at the pier, they're gonna to have to invest more into repair yard infrastructure. For us to have credible numbers of weapon stocks um, for a potential conflict, they're gonna to have to invest in munitions and in command and control capabilities, as you mentioned. All of these areas can only be properly funded if they come at the cost of some combatant holes. There's necessarily a balance there uh, that needs to take place. And, and we found that this balanced approach to fleet design can generate one that's more credible.
0: The sustainability issue extends not just to building the ships, maintaining them after uh, they're in the water as well. What does that look like from a perspective of the types of ships that you and your team are proposing that the Navy build?
3: Exactly. So in terms of the mix of ships, we recommended that the Navy start to make a a shift towards smaller ships, um, some of which can have smaller crews. Um, and some of which can be lightly manned or unmanned. Um, All of these vessels will have a significant operations and support cost. Um, Just because a vessel's unmanned doesn't mean that it's not gonna require uh, funding for its fuel, for its maintenance, and actually personnel um, occasionally aboard the ship, but definitely ashore to make them operate. So there's operations and support cost to all of these ships, But what we found is if the Navy slightly decreases the number of some of the big manned ships in its force, so for instance, if it goes from 11 nuclear-powered aircraft carriers to nine over the next 25 years, and makes some other changes in terms of large ships like the future large surface combatant and next-generation attack submarine by constraining their size, it can generate enough savings to uh, arrest the growth in operations and support costs and create the opportunity to actually field all of these smaller
0: vessels that enable distributed operations. Tim Walton, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now you get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes.